Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself, seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage today comes from Genesis 18, uh, verses 1 through 15. Listen for what God is saying to you. The Lord appeared to Abraham at the oaks of Mamre while he sat at the entrance of his tent in the day's heat. He looked up and suddenly saw three men standing near him. As soon as he saw them, he ran from his tent entrance to greet them and bowed deeply. He said, Sirs, if you would be so kind, don't just pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought so you may wash your feet and refresh yourselves under the tree. Let me offer you a little bread so you will feel stronger, and after that you may leave your servant and go on your way, since you have visited your servant. They responded, Fine, do just as you have said. So Abraham hurried to Sarah at his tent and said, Hurry, knead three seahs of the finest flour and make some baked goods. Abraham ran to the cattle, took a healthy young calf, and gave it to a young servant who prepared it quickly. Then Abraham took butter, milk, and the calf that had been prepared, put the food in front of them, and stood under the tree near them as they ate. They said to him, Where's your wife Sarah? And he said, Right here in the tent. Then one of the men said, I will definitely return to you about this time next year. Then your wife Sarah will have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were both very old. Sarah was no longer menstruating. So Sarah laughed to herself thinking, I'm no longer able to have children and my husband's old. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, me give birth at my age? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? When I return to you about this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Sarah lied and said, I didn't laugh because she was frightened. But he said, no, you laughed. <laughs> May God add a blessing to the hearing and living out of this scripture. Good morning again. Uh, for those of you who might have uh, walked in a little um, later, my name is Emily McGinley, and I am the pastor here at um, Urban Village Church Hyde Park Woodlawn, and grateful to serve in ministry uh, beside many of the folks that you've seen up front and many people who you don't see but who help us do what we do and be who we are. Let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. God, we're grateful for the gift of community. We're grateful for the gift of um, journeying together, um, that you strengthen us and that you bind us together in your love. And um, as we lean into this new sermon series on what it means to be family and all the many forms that family can take, um, God, we know that there is a lot of, of stuff that we carry within ourselves um, and in our histories around family, some of which is deeply joyful and some of which is really challenging. And so um, I pray that uh, folks would find um, a pathway to maybe new understanding um, and new ways of, of um, building life in community um, as a result of, of this series. And so now in this moment, I ask that you would clear away the clutter in our hearts and our minds and just help us to lean in and be a little bit more attentive to what it is that your spirit might be saying to us in this moment. Speak through me, uh, somewhat in spite of me, um, so that your word might be heard. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. 
In our passage for today, we drop in on Abraham and Sarah, who are sort of like the OG family of the Jewish community. Back in chapter 12, they were called to leave everything that they knew and follow God to an unknown place to make a new home. And in exchange for all of this faithful upheaval, God grants them a promise they just can't refuse to fulfill their deepest desire and wish of having a family, which is another way of saying uh, that, that they will have descendants and that their name will live on, which was um, a key um, aspect and a key value um, at that time, and maybe not only at that time, right? They, so they journey through hostile geography and, and dangerous tribal territories, and all along the way, God keeps dangling this carrot. I will make of you a great nation. Hang in there, hang in there. They eventually arrive in Hebron. Um, they establish a new home, and by now, Abraham is 99 years old. These are no spring chickens. In fact, these are like late winter chickens, right? And Sarah's ovaries have pretty much dried up and turned to dust, and you wouldn't blame them if they were starting to feel like a bunch of chumps at this point, right? And one afternoon, Abraham is sitting on the stoop, perhaps wondering where he went wrong, if this God really was all that they made themselves up to be, wondering if he and Sarah had missed something along the way, maybe, had been accidentally unfaithful, wondering if it was still too early to share spoilers about the latest Avengers movie, when he looks up and sees three strangers traveling in the sweltering heat. He jumps up to help, and uh, Abraham and Sarah go above and beyond as they welcome these strangers into their home. They do more than give some water and shade. They roll out a feast, feeding them choice meats, rich milk and yogurt, fresh-baked pastries. What is it, then, that leads them to this kind of hospitality, this abundant, generous, effusive, open-hearted kind of hospitality, especially to strangers who are walking in a desert? Well, today we have a special opportunity to hear from some folks in our own community who have tried to practice that same kind of hospitality through fostering children. So I'm gonna invite um, representatives from our three foster families, uh, Drew, Keisha, and Tammy, to come on up um, and get situated. So give us a minute here while we do that. So while uh, the rest of the team is getting um, situated, um, why don't we kind of start with Drew and then go to Keisha and Tammy. Um, if you could sort of share your names, uh, the ages of the kids um, that you are in your fostering family, um, how long you've been carrying them, um, and if, if you know this information, how many, maybe how many foster homes that they'd been in before they came to you. All right, so I'm Drew Jones. Um, I've been part of this community for about six years, and uh, I, I'm fostering four boys, but three of them are pre-adoptive, and so I didn't come to foster care for the sake of fostering. I came to foster care with the intention to adopt. So I, I don't know if you've ever seen the CTA uh, bus advertisements that say uh, adopt US kids or you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Um, I saw one of those after um, Sean and I, my previous husband, uh, and I decided to get divorced, I was sitting in traffic and saw that. And so I went to the website. The website directed me to the Dave Thomas Foundation. And then I was connected to Wendy's Wonderful Kids locally, um, who then was reached out to by SOS Children's Village. So um, they're pre-adoptive, but they're still considered foster children because their mom hasn't lost her rights yet. And so then Demetrius is uh, pure foster uh, with the goal of returning home. Um, uh, Adam and Joshua have been in about um, eight homes total. Mm -hmm. I think I have, I was their seventh and ninth placement. If you all remember last year, they left for a couple months. Um, so I was their seventh and ninth placement. 
and then Demetrius, uh, I am his eighth placement, and unfortunately he is going to be moving on to a ninth placement um, in the next week or two. And you have one more? And I have a <laughs> biological daughter, uh, Anne-Marie, who you all, most of you know um, plays the drums here at UBC. But you also have one more foster Wait. child. Oh, Isaiah. Isaiah. Okay, I mentioned him earlier. It's, it's too like many. Home alone. It's like home alone. <laughs> no, I literally just told someone the other day when my kids are getting out the car, it's like one of those clown uh, cartoons where you see like people at one after another and you're like, are they done yet? And I literally have to sit and look in the side view mirror to see if all my kids are out. Um, Isaiah has been in, I believe, four foster homes. He, he came into care when he was six months old and he wasn't placed with Adam and Joshua. Um, initially, so um, so Isaiah has been in fewer homes uh, than the other boys. Adam's 14? 14, yeah, 14, 14. Amory's th 14, Adam's 14. We have 11, 9, and 5. Joshua's 9, no, 11. 11, Demetrius is 9, yeah. and Isaiah is 5. Yep. Okay. How about you, Keisha? Um, <laughs> my name is Keisha. I have been fostering for like four years. I've only been at UBC for like maybe five months. Um, funny story is I was Joshua and Adam's foster parents before I'd even known Drew or of UVC, so it was mm -hmm. an interesting find when I came here. Um, right now I have a eight-year-old um, Zeta and a 19-month-old Emerson. We did have a 10-year-old Kiana who was moved to another placement. Um, Zeta has been in 16 homes um, in her six years of foster care. Emerson um, has been in two homes in his 19 months of foster care. Um, I started fostering to just foster and um, promote reunification with parents. And when they asked if I wanted to adopt Kiana and Zeta, initially I said yes. Um, I fostered 11 kids total, so it's been a ride. Mm. Hi, I'm Cami. Um, my wife and I have been at UVC since actually uh, we came here when she was pregnant with our daughter, Audie, who is now five. So I guess it's been almost six years. We, ha we currently have one foster placement in the process of adopting him, Joey, he is 15. Uh, we've had, he is our fourth placement. Um, he, he came from a, a long-term foster placement and prior to that, he was with his bio family. Um, so what are, some, what are some of the um, challenges that you face with fostering? Like what makes you, and also kind of even probably more than that, what, what makes you want to choose to open your home in this way? Like what is, is there something in your story that kind of shaped that or developed that? that desire to open yourself in that way? What is it that um, not everyone feels competent or ready or interested in fostering? So what is it about that kind of led you to that? Do you want to go first? Oh, yeah, sure. Um, well, I have a little bit of background in foster care. My mom was a foster child, and she aged out. She was in maybe, and this was when DCFS was more horrid. Um, she was in maybe like 20 placements. Um, and then when she turned 16, she just ended up running away because it was just too much. Um, 
And then my youngest sister was adopted from foster care. So it's kind of something that was always like just building and building and building. And I was a nanny before I started fostering. And I don't know what led me to um, SOS Children's Village's website. I think I just clicked on a link and then clicked on a link and then somehow I was there and I was like, well, I'll just apply and see what happens. And two months later, I was fostering. So it's just kind of God-led thing. Um, I have a kind of a similar story, actually. My father was raised in foster care from the time he was three. Um, and I know this is going to sound really biased, but like, seriously, my father is the greatest guy I've ever known. <laughs> and um, so I wanted to honor that. And um, when, when I was a young adult, my parents fostered teenagers. Um, and, you know, as a young adult, I, I wasn't, you know, I didn't know what was going on in the world, but I could see that, you know, there was a real need for, for care. Um, we had, I, I grew up in a family of social workers, so you always hear about the, the problems in the systems, the needs in the systems, everything, you know, so it was always in my mind. Um, I, I always wanted to be a mom. Um, as a, you know, as a, a lesbian, that's not always the easiest thing, uh, as, you know, and so my wife, she loves being a mom, and so she agreed with me that we would start our foster care journey uh, three years ago. Uh, I have the opposite story as those two. Uh, my parents did not uh, come out of foster care, but they introduced me to foster care by being foster parents um, when I was young. So uh, we started with uh, a two and a half year old. Uh, she's my sister, Ariel. Um, and then about two months after Ariel came to us in uh, 1997, I believe, um, her newborn uh, sister, Tatiana. So we had Ariel and Tatiana for about two and a half years. My parents actually went through the process of beginning adoption for them and their mom, who had uh, a plethora of issues, um, asked my parents, um, would, would they give her another chance? And so my parents, um, through a lot of prayer, my parents are ministers, they have an outreach ministry, uh, they're both ordained. My dad's an apostle, my mom's an evangelist, and they just said, you know, if that were us, if that were me, and I had a laundry list of issues, but I worked towards recovery, would I want someone to release my children back to me? And the judge put the answer in my parents' hands because they were, they had already signed adoption, um, the adoption protocol papers. Um, my parents gave them up, and it 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 was, it was like a double death for our entire family uh, because they had become in, they had completely integrated into our family, um, and. Everybody had issues after that. We should have been in therapy, and you know, unfortunately, in the community I was raised in, therapy is not on the list of responses to loss and grief. Um, and so, um, they left. We and about ten years later, um, when, about when MySpace came out, um, I I looked for them every year on their birthdays, August third, December third. I would search 
any social media for, for my foster sisters. And one year I found them. I found Ariel on MySpace and we reconnected, we exchanged numbers. And um, about three or four years later, I found Tatiana on Facebook. And we started inviting them to family meals. Um, long story short, their mom ended up passing away. Um, Tatiana aged out of foster care. Um, their mom lost Ariel as well earlier on, earlier on, and she ended up aging out out of foster care. Um, no, her sister ended up taking her. And when they came to Christmas one year, they said to us, we wish you all had just kept us. We wish you all had just kept us. Our life would have been better. And so for those reasons, plus my aunt and uncle who are Air Force uh, retired, um, they also adopted. I knew from when being a teenager that at some point I would foster and or adopt. So it's really interesting that, um, that I mean, so for each of you, you have these personal family um, experiences of adoption that really opened your heart and kind of created maybe even a culture within your kind of self and your family around a sort of open-heartedness, a kind of hospitality, especially to, um, to folks who are more vulnerable. Um, and what's interesting is when I think about Abraham leaping up to greet his neighbors, I was reminded of this um, traditional Arabic greeting, um, ahlan wa sahlan, some of, some of you have heard me say this, share about this before, but it's a, it's a greeting that you'll still hear um, in Arabic speaking countries and it means welcome, you are like family and I will make your way easy. Um, and it's, it's rooted in kind of nomadic culture, in, in desert culture where folks would, you would see people, you know, kind of traveling through and the desert is a deadly place. And so you welcome them into your home um, just as you would want to be welcomed as well. Um, and, but it also, it's, it's a greeting, but it's also a culture, right? It, it represents a way of thinking about being in relationship to not just people that you know, but to people that you don't really know. And it indicates that you are ready, You'll all, you should always be sort of prepared and ready to receive people. So that means you kind of have to be, have a certain level of preparedness. You guys have shared about some of that heart preparedness, but there's also like literal preparation that you have to do in order to both be qualified to foster, but also to like prepare your home so that it is um, a, a place that is approved to, to receive children. So um, Keisha, would you be willing to share a little bit about like how you prepared to receive your kids um, and, and kind of in the course of that, even after you had done all the things on the checklist, like what did you realize that you didn't have or that you needed more of, um, even with your experience of, of fostering? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, we need more time always, but <laughs> that can't be done. Uh, in order to foster, there are a list of qualifications that you have to do to prepare. So there's like pride classes and background checks and fingerprints and a mini physical to make sure that you can like carry a child in case the building was burning. So like it's very, very simple. Um, but as for like preparing kids for our home, um, the only way to answer that is to understand how they come in. So we can get a call at 2 a.m. on Friday about a placement. Um, we just got a call on like 6 p.m. on a Sunday for a 15-year-old boy. And to prepare, we pretty much rearranged our entire house because the dynamic of where the bedrooms were um, in an excited frenzy. And you can have anywhere between 15 minutes to be ready for them or three hours. And then you don't always know if they're actually coming. So it, it can get really intense. Um, and then when Emerson came, like we reached out to like Facebook and called friends, like, does anyone have a crib? Like, this baby's coming tonight. We need a crib tonight. Um, yeah, so it's, it's kind of like you have to be quick on your feet. I realize things that we don't have is 
anything gender neutral. Um, so we put in our 15-year-old boy's room um, some Paw Patrol pillows. And then he had um, powder princess sheets and um, a Lala Loopsy pink comforter. Um, yeah, so like we don't have anything like neutral. Like we were always like, oh, we need toothbrushes. Oh, we don't have extra toothbrushes in the house. Or mm-hmm. we don't have any regular body wash. Or what if they have allergies? Like we don't have anything to be pre- prepared for allergies. So like basic necessities after we've gotten ready has been like, oh, we probably could have used this. So this is something we should definitely be stocked up on. Mm-hmm. So but like the little details about yeah, those small details. life together that you don't even think about when you've kind right. of been doing life together for mm-hmm. a long time. Mm-hmm. So of course, as, uh, as prepared as you might end up being to receive people, you kind of find yourself um, encountering circumstances or interactions that you couldn't have just anticipated on your own. And, and that's somewhat similar to what um, Abraham and Sarah face. During the meal, these strangers ask about Sarah. Um, and she's not um, in the space. She's just outside. Um, and they, they repeat this promise um, that Sarah and Abraham have heard um, so many times, right? Only in this time, it has this time stamp, right, next in one year. Um, and Sarah just can't help but laugh, right, because she has heard this more times than she can count. And I have some thoughts about this whole exchange because I feel like the angel was super annoyed looking at Abraham, like, you didn't tell her? Because just one chapter before, God literally had told Abraham the same thing, and Abraham fell on his face and he laughed, right? And clearly Abraham had failed to communicate this to her. So I'm certain about that, like, the angel is about to go in on Abraham when Sarah, like, actually so totally and unnecessarily steps in to save Abraham's behind, even after he's done some pretty kind of heinous stuff to her that I can't get into right now, but just like read Genesis 12 through 18, right? So she, but she steps in, and Abraham never gets his dressing down from that angel because she totally diverted that energy. This is my read on it, right? And even worse than that, she lies, right? She says, I didn't, I didn't laugh when like clearly she had, which then shifts all this attention on her dupusness and gets Abraham off. And now if that isn't family, right, then I don't know what is. <laughs> but I digress. I just felt like I needed to say that. Because before the, that interchange, if you look a little closer, what we understand about Sarah's laugh is that it, it's a broken-hearted, borderline cynical, grief-filled laugh. She is well past menopause, and sex is not a pleasure for her. And so Sarah, at least in her mind, is like this dried-up vessel, and not only is it impossible for her to become pregnant, it's almost cruel to keep lifting her expectations in this way at this point. So what these strangers, and the passage switches, um, interestingly enough, to then talking about calling them the Lord. So what the Lord does um, in this moment is confront Sarah one last time. Will you have faith enough to open yourself to the mystery of God's movement in the world? And the response that God gives is saturated with love and compassion. Is there anything too wonderful for me to do? And this word that gets translated as wonderful, it's a a tricky one because it could also mean difficult, which I think is an interesting um, texturization, right, to what God is saying. Is anything too difficult for me? Is anything too wonderful for me? And this mixing of wonderful and difficult, this dance between anticipation and pain, it introduces something to Sarah that maybe she had kind of begun to loathe, hope. Hope that there really is an end to her spiritual agony. Hope that maybe they were not fools to have given up so much. Hope that maybe they could stop waiting to exhale, right? This visit from these strangers who turned out to be God was both a challenge and a blessing. 
And this is, is the way it is, I think, when we invite people into our lives, into our homes, complete strangers who are packages of personality and baggage and trauma that you don't know until it sort of emerges, when we invite these folks into our lives. Um, and I know that this has been true for you guys because I've heard it from you. Um, and so I'd ask Drew, what, what's one way that you have been challenged in your fostering journey? And what is one way that you have been blessed kind of unexpectedly? Um, so I had to change my expectations for what parenting looked like. Um, parenting Anne-Marie um, looked one way and parenting um, Adam, Joshua, Demetrius, and Isaiah looks completely different. As a matter of fact, parenting Adam and parenting Isaiah looks different, right? And so um, it helped me to realize that being a music teacher really set me up to do this well. Um, I didn't know it, and when I first got them, I constantly told people, I said, I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what I'm doing. Every night, you know, I would finish, and if I felt like we had a good day, I'd feel like I did a good job. If we had a tough day and somebody had a challenge, either at school, at home, in the car, at church, and in Walmart, I felt like I failed, right? And so I was owning everybody's stuff, um, and it took a lot of therapy. I had to actually um, take uh, some me time. And as they were in therapy, I was getting therapy. We were doing therapy, family counseling together. I was doing it separate. And it made me have to own some of my own stuff, right? Because those who know Emery, she's real easy to get along with. She goes with the flow. She doesn't too much complain. She could be out of tissue downstairs, and she'll find a, a cloth or something to go in, right? She'll make it work. She makes it do what it do. Um, but parenting boys, period, is different than parenting a girl. Even though she's a tomboy, she's still a girl. Like, she carries herself. Like, she cleans up behind herself. It's way different. Uh, and owning, owning the way that I talk to people, um, that was a challenge because Adam, Joshua, Isaiah particularly, Demetrius is real easy. He, he has some issues, but he's easy when it comes to me, right? If, if I tell him to do something, he does it. If I, if I ask him to clean up something, he does it. But with my three uh, pre-adoptive sons, um, they don't care what kind of day you've had. When you talk to them, when you talk to Joshua, you have to talk to him in a low tone, in a respectful tone, or you're going to get what you're giving, right? And it's the same way at school. So I had to kind of own some of my stuff and the ways that I talk to people. And it was reflected in my teaching. About a year after I had them, I had a conversation with my principal, and she acknowledged how the way that I've interacted with students shifted just because I had to shift, make that shift at home. Um, the blessing was that, you know, after my second divorce, I, I was married to Emery's mom, then I was married to Sean for six years. 12 years of marriage and knowing and like living as a pair um, shifts, right? And then, so I'm now sitting in this house, this four bedroom house by myself, Emery's at her mom's house at night during the week. And I was driving myself crazy, you know, sitting in the house alone. Um, and then I developed this sort of codependency where I felt like I had to be with someone. I had to be in a relationship. I had to seek something else other than being just Drew. And so I dealt with that. I had to unpack all of my personal issues so I could be good to them. Them coming into my home 
was the biggest bless has been the biggest blessing uh, of my life in the last two years. I don't know if they realize it, and I didn't expect any of my kids to be sitting in here while we had this conversation. <laughs> um, otherwise, I might have shifted my answers. I don't want Joshua Head to get big, but them being a part of my life has been um, a, a great blessing to me. The hospitality always entails a little bit of risk um, to open yourself up, and and not only in the ways that you would expect, but then the risk to your own self-identity and, and ways that you would, would like to look at yourself in the world, right? Um, and that's true no matter whether we're living in biblical times or in the modern era, right? When you open yourself to others, you make yourself vulnerable in so many ways, but it can also make the difference between life and death. For those strangers who were traveling through the desert at the hottest time of the day, what Sarah and Abraham offered was a safe haven from the brutality of an arid desert and scorching sun. And for foster families, life and death is also no exaggeration. The safety they offer might actually be even more acute than journeying in the desert. Now, if you've been paying attention to the news, you might have heard about a little boy named A.J. Freund. A.J. was a five-year-old boy who was taken from his opioid-addicted parents by the Illinois Department of Children and Family Services just after being born. But then he returned to his family after the parents attended required parenting classes. And since then... Since that time, in his five years, DCFS had multiple interactions with them. And just this past December, he had been found to have a large bruise on his hip by child welfare investigators. And when he was asked about it, he told them that it was caused by the family dog, but later told an emergency room doctor that maybe someone hit me with a belt. Maybe mommy didn't mean to hurt me. Thirteen days ago, AJ was found dead in a shallow grave with head trauma. AJ's older sibling has since been removed from the home. In an underfunded child welfare system with overloaded caseworkers, minimal accountability, and parents who are not capable or concerned to do what is right by their kids, foster families are needed more than ever. It is challenging, and it is really a big risk that not everyone can take, but it is a risk that is worth considering. And so as, as, uh, as you guys thought about what would it be like to, um, to foster, um, Tammy, I'll ask you, um, what is one thing that you, like for anyone who says to you, like, oh, I'm kind of thinking about fostering, what do you think about that? What is one thing that you would want to make sure that people know, or just people in general, people who are part of your church family who know you and love you, what is one thing that you want them to know about what it's like to foster? The... the, the the, the biggest thing that I didn't consider when I started was cases like that. Everything in the public sphere about parenting, about foster parents, about children who have been a part of the system and maybe are no longer with us, um, investigators, it's all personal. It all becomes personal to you. And sometimes it feels like a personal attack. Um, Sometimes it feels like you're shouting into the wind that this isn't right and everybody else thinks everything is fine. Um, sometimes it feels like you're a part of this system and have zero control over anything. You know, It's all just like this big, huge, giant system that just functions on its own and you don't have any say in it. Um, it's... It's really hard because the reality is 
a vast majority of the people in the system. Foster families, investigators, caseworkers, biological parents, a vast majority are trying their hardest to do the right thing by these kids. Most of what you guys hear about is the really bad stuff. But what we see is so many people trying so hard with such limited resources mm. and with so much trauma and doing our best to manage the secondary trauma that comes on to everybody who is involved in this system. So um, we appreciate you guys listening to us and, and, and learning more about it, if that helps. Not everyone can foster, it's a lot of work. Um, not everyone is able or up to fostering, but everyone can help a foster family, and we have three here in our community. Um, last month, these folks got together for the first time for support and fellowship, and last week they all went to the zoo together. <laughs> and they need each other, but they also need you, right? Um, one of the things that I was, that just hadn't occurred to me that I heard from Tammy was, you know, when foster parents get a new kid, it's kind of like when you get a new baby. Like, they can really, the, your sleep gets disrupted, you, you don't have time, you're totally stressed in the transition, you don't have time to make food, that kind of thing. So, um, as, as we all think about how we might support them as they support others, to think about whether we can offer babysitting for a parent's night out or frozen meals for those days when, you're, when they're feeling physically or emotionally exhausted or a gift card to help offset costs. Everyone can do something, right? And so um, if there was one ask that you would have for this congregation, um, uh, what, would that, what would that be for, for people to kind of think about just really quickly? Um. I was thinking relationships. Uh, my kids uh, get moved around, they've gotten moved around quite a bit. Uh, UVC's been pretty good about that. I see my kids, I see aspects of them at church that I don't see at other places. Um, but just asking the com community not be shy in interacting with my boys or my daughter. Um, just building relationships with them. Um, Childcare is always great, even if it's one time a year, right? If you have 10 people who will watch your kids for four hours one time a year, that's 10 times you get to go out on date night or go to the gym, right? And I can use some of that. Um, also, um, I, my, my, my dad's brother passed away a couple weeks ago. And at the funeral, uh, I saw a lot of folks from my uh, church of record. And so I saw my godfather. I saw a whole bunch of other folks. And my son Adam was like, what's a godfather? And you don't always realize the part of your kids' journey that they missed out on by growing up in foster care. I didn't know my kid didn't know what a godfather was. And so, you know, things like that, they didn't get. Um, and so building those relationships um, and c considering confirmation when it's time makes a huge difference. And so I've, I had that conversation with Adam in particular, um, and it had crossed my mind before, but they didn't, Nobody had expressed an interest in it. And so um, as relationships build, eventually my kids will want godparents. And it would be my hope that um, some of those godparents would come from this community. Um, well, I second relationship to quite a bit. Um, I have a very small family who is not supportive or fostering, uh, fostering or um, my relationships. So it's kind of just us. 
Um, they don't have like cousins that they can play with or um, I know I can be very irritating as a parent. So like I, when I was little, I had someone I could call my family. I would call my grandma and say, my mom's not letting me do this. This is not fair. And she had, I had someone to vent to. My daughter has no one. So she kind of just sits there and now she's also kind of like an only child because it's her and the baby. So she's very lonely. Um, and apart from relationship, um, I would say if we're getting a new placement in the middle of the night um, and they don't come, relationship for me as well. So someone that I could vent to that won't completely say, I hate the foster care system because it's really not that. It's just sometimes we get very, very frustrated and there's no one we can talk to about the frustrations. Um, and then uh, the last thing would be meals. So when we have a new placement or I had a child who was in and out of the hospital, we were eating ramen noodles like every night because I just did not have the emotional capacity to cook anything. And then my partner was already stretched like really, really thin because she was taking care of everything while I was completely broken down. So um, yeah, meals, family. I don't think my kids don't know what family really is. Yeah, that that's a really good point about the like being stretched thin. Um, foster kids come with a myriad of appointments all the time, mm -hmm. like at least one or two evenings a week after work. We are doing something for our foster son right now, um, so meals definitely could be helpful when we have to run from here to here to here and then it's seven o'clock by the time everybody is done and you know our daughter is supposed to be in bed and we haven't even thought about what to do for dinner. Um, uh, the other thing, childcare is super important. It can be intimidating to think about babysitting for a kid that maybe has some trauma and maybe has some you know, ways of expressing that trauma that, you know, are, are not the, the best. And I get that. Um, but it can mean a, a world to foster parents. Um, something like 50% of all foster parents get out after the first year. And don't, yeah, it's, it is ridiculously not okay. And the, one of the biggest reasons is because they need a break not because they need to get out, but because they need a break. Um, our family and Keisha's family belong to a Christian-based foster parent support group that a foster and adoptive family started in the South suburbs. They now have, in, in, in a year's time, they've grown to like, I think 14 groups. Um, they've grown by like 600% or something like that in a year because there's such a need. And the, and the, at the groups, it's great because we get to talk to other foster parents that understand us, but the other thing is they offer free childcare while we're there. The children go with volunteers in a different area of the home, so it's not like nobody's being separated, but they get their own space and we get our own space. So we need volunteers. <laughs> We need you guys to please consider, pray about helping with that. Last month at our, at our group, the facilitator had to get his teenage nephew and his girlfriend to come and, and do childcare because there wasn't enough volunteers. 
And it's like, when you're 16, that's not a really great date night. Uh, hopefully good birth control, but <laughs> not a great date, okay? So if you would like to consider doing childcare or any of that for our foster group or for any of the foster parents at church, you can contact me. My email is in the worship guide. Uh, worship guide. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, so if, you're, if you want to help in some way, um, you can, can contact Tammy and, and she'll uh, be able to give you those avenues. Um, I know we have kind of gone long, but I hope that it has been a way for you to be able to understand um, what the folks in our community are carry, carrying, but even more than that, how we can help care for those who are doing acute care for others. Many generations after Abraham and Sarah opened their homes and their hearts, another man, who many of us also call Lord, told his followers, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. God knew, and Jesus made it plain, that caring for the most vulnerable is not an option, it's a commandment. And he told this to his friends, his chosen family, because he considered them family. And family really begins with hospitality. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for the, the gifts and ministries that you have given to our siblings up here. And we ask that you would, you would bless and keep and strengthen the families that Drew and Keisha and Angel and Tammy and Jackie are trying to both create a space of, um, of order in a, in a world and a life filled with chaos. Um, and we ask that you would help us to know the ways that we might support them in their work. Um, Help us to be family together as they try to be family for others. And help us in our um, efforts of doing that work to bear witness to a world that so deeply needs to know that kind of heart hospitality that family, um, in whatever form it shows up, can provide. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.